You can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash firstpawmedia. Here's to the adventure-seeking dog mushers out there. The hundreds of you who stand on the runners dreaming and thinking about the northern lights. Of course, there is something else you can do if you've got something to say. Start a podcast with First Palm Media and harness your creative side. Maybe even earn enough money. Enough money to tell yourself, hey, I'm not just a dog musher. I'm a rover. I'm a wanderer. I'm a voyager. I'm an explorer. Visit firstpaw.media. Mush on over today. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hey, Mushing Radio listeners. We mentioned this earlier in our Iditarod coverage, but... We set up a way to take questions from our listeners. Please leave us a voicemail at 303-578-9881 or send a voice memo to firstpawmedia at gmail.com. Simply leave your name and where you are calling from. And please, if you want us to use it, keep your questions to under 30 seconds. That's it. I want to say the number and the voice memo one more time, 303-578-9881 and send to firstpawmedia at gmail.com if you prefer. We can't wait to hear from you. And before we get started, you guys, I want to make a mention and say happy belated birthday to Matt Failer and Eddie Burke who celebrated their birthdays just a few days ago. Yeah, I know it's tough uh, spending birthdays and anniversaries and special days out on the trail. I get yelled at for it just about every year, but... uh, That's because your birthday and our anniversary happen while you would be out on the trail. There you go. So guys, let's kick this off. This is Robert, and I am joined tonight by my co-hosts Tony and Michelle, and you're listening to our continued Iditarod coverage here on KVRF, 89.7 in the Matsu Valley. RadioFreePalmer.org is our live streaming site. And you can find all of our past episodes over on FirstPaw.media. Check us out over on social media as well under the same name, FirstPawMedia. And I want to welcome our newest Patreon member, Kathy Paddock. You can become a patron over on Patreon.com slash FirstPawMedia. Michelle, how's it going tonight? It's going great. And I want to add something to that Patreon announcement. You know, you guys, there are cookies out there on our Patreon. Go take a look so that you can get in on the special cookies that Tony Ryder makes and she is well known for. Yes. With that, Tony, how's it going tonight? Uh, it's going pretty well. The sun is setting as we're recording, and I'm starting to have a little bit of FOMO because it's a gorgeous orange and pink and red sunset, and I'm sitting here looking at it but not taking pictures of it because we're still here talking about Iditarod. I wouldn't go out there anyway because we are now going across the Norton Sound sea ice, and so I have to sit there and watch and will them all not to fall into the ocean right now. I know that was a big deal, and that's going to be one of our stories here in just a second. But let's give a quick trail report, as we always do every night at time of recording. We have Ryan Reddington in first, Pete Kaiser, Richie Deal, Matt Hall, Kelly Maxner in fifth, followed up by a battle for Rookie of the Year, Eddie and Hunter. And pulling up the rear right now, we have Jed Stevenson, who we're going to talk a little bit about. Later on, Eric Kelly, Jason Mackey, Bailey Vitello, and Joanna Jagow. So that is our uh, our race, if you will. And it looks like uh, Jed is in Eagle Island, and Ryan is out of Shaktulik, as you mentioned, Tony. Uh, on that sea ice, heading over. This is the third third of the race. A 
exciting time, and we're going to jump into that as well. But I understand that you have a story about the good trail throughout the rest of the course. I know it was taken from the air, and there's a little bit of uh, back and forth going on with some guy named Mitch. Tell us a little bit about that story. (laughs) Okay, well, there wasn't a whole back and forth. He just likes to get my anxiety up, I swear. Um, No, so yesterday there was a little bit of concern because the rumor was that there was open water um, out of out on the trail on the sea ice there between Shaktulik and Koyuk, which is where our leaders are running right now. But as Insider flew over earlier today, um, late morning, early afternoon, they definitely took a look by air um, at the trail. Didn't see any signs that are concerning as far as open water. What they did notice is there are a lot of pressure ridges out there on the ice, so not exactly jumble ice, but still very concerning because you can still pinball, especially in the 25-mile-per-hour northerly winds that are blowing straight at the teams as they're trying to run up that ice towards Koyuk. Um, And then from there, they're getting trail reports that the trail is hard-packed and fast. Wind has blown and packed down those trails. So there isn't a lot of snow drift. There's not a lot of snow to drift. We probably will not see a ground blizzard for our, at least our lead pack and chase pack. Um, As we know, weather changes quickly on the west coast of Alaska. So there's, there's no promises that the further back you go in this race that the weather won't change drastically. But it sounds like, if anything, it's just going to be a lot of wind blowing them everywhere. Um, but not a lot of ground blizzards. So they'll still have visibility during the day. Um, so that's kind of our, our trail report. It's kind of exciting to think that maybe everyone survives without overflow and ground blizzards and blowing off the face of the earth. But I, I hesitate to say it's going to be an easy run because we know that this spot, especially once they get off that ice, and hit the blowhole and the Topcock Hills, anything is possible. Speaking of anything is possible, Tony, I know that you're a huge Disney fan, and I'm sure that you got a chance (laughs) to watch the movie Togo. And Michelle, you and I watched that as well. And one of the most dramatic (laughs) moments in Togo was traveling over the sea ice with uh, Sepala and, and his dog Togo. Do you remember that scene where it was just... Uh, white knuckling the whole way. What'd you think about that? Well, my exact words were, nope. (laughs) It was, it was a little bit over the top, wasn't it, Tony? It was, but if you have read or heard any of the story being told by Seppala um, back in the day, it was kind of like any other mushing story or any good fish story. It got bigger and more grandiose every time he told it. So the idea that, you know, Disney went overboard, yes, they did. But I do think that that was kind of a nod to Seppala making it more and more grandiose. But my dad, as we were watching, he's like, all that's going to make this better is a whale popping up and say, get on my back, I'll take you to shore. Dad was just waiting for something like that because it was over the top. It, it was, and uh, that would have really uh, set it on that Disney path if uh, that, that whale from <laughs> Pinocchio uh, would have jumped up there for sure. So also, we have a real run for Rookie of the Year with Eddie Burke mm-hmm. and Hunter Keefe really going neck and neck. What are your thoughts on that? I'm excited. I like a good battle, um, especially when... Uh, it's between two very likable mushers. I know that there are now camps. Uh, I'm starting to see fans take sides, which one deserves it more and that sort of thing. But really, they both have great stories. Hunter Keith has literally dreamt of this moment pretty much his entire life. Um, so for him to be here, be in the top 10 and be vying for rookie of the year, that's that's exciting. And with Eddie Burke Jr., that's a wild story in and of itself. He 
got into mushing haphazardly. He just decided to place bets one year on the Iditarod, decided to go to the musher banquet to kind of try and get insider intel so he could make a better bet, and then got hooked into it. He used to do not necessarily podcasts, but kind of like mini blogs on his social media page. I think he did some video. Um, and then he gets offered to run dogs at Aaron Burmeister's kennel, and he dropped everything and, and went up to Nanana and, and started learning from one of the best dog drivers there is. So it's been kind of a not a Cinderella story, but it's been one of those Disney-esque fairy tale, remember the Titans type stories where it's just like it seemingly comes out of nowhere. So you can you can't help but really root for both of them. And right now I'm looking at the GPS. They're literally neck and neck. I have a feeling we're going to see that all the way to Nome. Uh, it's going to be one of the big stories of this race. And Michelle, I know that you're looking at the maps and stuff, but you may have a little bit of an update on Brent Sass uh, and uh, reading his posts this morning. What do you know? Um, I didn't read any of the Brent Sass updates. I believe that Tony did. Um, but from what I understand, he did make it to Unicolite. He was uh, looked over by the team of doctors there. I know that there's been some uh, banter back and forth and some uh, f internet sleuthing and, and medical advice given about what could possibly be wrong with him. And I'd like to say that we all need to just take a little bit of a breath. And recognize mm -hmm. that he is in good hands. Iditarod provides top-notch medical care. And there is no risk of any of the mushers carrying COVID throughout the race. Because they are monitored, they are checked, and they are tested. And I am absolutely sure that Brent was tested once he arrived in Unicolite at the medical facility there. He does not have covid and he is fighting off quite the infection in his mouth. And if anyone has ever experienced any kind of toothache that got infected, you know the risk is great and can become grave. So, Tony, there was a, a little bit of talk this morning about this, about how uh, much involved the vet checks and all and everything are for the dogs they do ekg tests and you know physicals and vet checks and blood work and the whole nine yards and there was some back and forth going on about wonder why nothing is done for the mushers and i know michelle had mentioned uh, covid tests they are not requiring covid tests this year nor are they requiring vaccines but i wonder why they're not giving some type of physical. I mean, you cannot sign up for high school basketball without going down to the local urgent care or your family doc and getting a quick sports physical. It's a huge business around uh, the first of the year when all the kids are packed in into these clinics to get a quick uh, once over by the doc. But I wonder why these professional athletes and they're professional by every uh, thing imaginable. I wonder why they're not required to get any type of check. What do you know about that, or at least an opinion? Uh, I have no knowledge. I don't even know that I have a true opinion. I would assume that it's just one of those things where, you know, you don't tell them I'm sure they can or can't do something. Um, we, we joke or we comment about it all the time that, you know, mushers ignore everything about their own well-being, but they they obsess over their dog's well-being. That's why you'll see someone go with a broken collarbone down the trail or a broken, you know, pelvis we saw one year um, until they were told that they were going to withdraw for the betterment of their team as well as themselves. Um, you know, I think the only requirement is if you can prove that you can take care of your dog team, everything else is up to you. You decide if you're physically fit enough to do that. Um, I don't expect that they would let someone with oxygen, you know, show up and, and go down the trail or anything like that. But we do have mushers with type 1 diabetes that go out on the trail, um, you know, and, and I, I think it's just giving the, the mushers the ability to make that choice. But it is a good argument or at least wonderment 
to, to ask why they don't do the basics. Now, they do drug tests the mushers, the top 20 mushers, as we found out with Lance Mackey a few years ago. Um, and they do uh, test for substances, especially um, drugs and alcohol that are that are on the banned list uh, or are illegal. Um, so they do a few tests, but not like a full physical. And Michelle, and this was a topic that was not on our list. And now that we were talking about Brent, uh, I think it's a, an interesting discussion to have. Michelle, what are your thoughts about uh, uh, requiring or not requiring the mushers to have some type of once-over sports physical checkup, something? What are your thoughts on that? I'm actually surprised that it's not part of the um, qualification process. We put the dogs through the same rigorous type of a checkup to make sure that they're physically sound and uh, updated on their vaccinations and safe to perform at this level of athleticism. Why in the world aren't we doing that for a dog musher? It's done for every other type of um, athlete that I can think of, even at the high school level. Yeah, and, and sitting here listening to you guys and, and thinking about it myself, I think it should be uh, at least a requirement. And, you know, like Tony said, there is this uh, this aura about mushers that they can't be told what to do or uh, they, they have this specific lifestyle or whatever. And, you know, that's all well and good. But when you're involved in a competitive endeavor... I think that you should at least be given um, the the once over or a checkup to say, yep, I'm able to do this and uh, work your way down the trail. Uh, there was an argument on that thread that said these guys live in the middle of nowhere and they can't get the checks. That's a that's a mute, that, that's bull crap. That's a mute argument they, because they can they can get the checkups. That's a mute argument because they have to get the checkups for the dogs, whether they're doing it in town when they arrive during that week before I did a rod and they do the blood tests and the EKGs and all that. I don't see why they couldn't have a trailer set up uh, where they have a doc or two, like a, like a mobile health clinic where they would get those guys checked. Now, what would happen if they do get the check and they find out something uh, that that's another argument altogether. I know Tony said, yeah, there are folks out there that have, type 1 diabetes and probably heart disease and high cholesterol and all sorts of other things. Of course, we've had several folks with, with cancer, I'm sure, more than Lance. Uh, you know, some of them are recovering or, or have recovered or may have it on the trail. It would be interesting to see if, if they did not pass the physical, what would happen. But I think it's an interesting argument to have. So it looks like we have, Tony, uh, thumbs up or thumbs down on the physical. Well, I'd also like to point out that one of their newer sponsors or partnerships, I think is what they've called it, is with Capstone that started during the COVID thing where they had to test all of the mushers regularly on the trail, but they've stuck with them this year as well, even though they're not requiring it. So, I mean, I could see it in the future where they could do some sort of basic physical for the mushers to then be allowed to, you know, either say yay or nay. So I'm, I'm going to do like, I, I'm, I'm going to be a fence sitter. I'm just going to put my thumb, you know, halfway up, halfway down right there in the middle. Cause I, I really don't know where I stand on it. So a thumbs sideways. So Michelle thumbs up, thumbs down go. or thumbs sideways on a, <laughs> uh, a requirement to have a sports physical, just like your basic high school football sports physical where they're doing just the vitals and the checkup and all that. What do you think? Well, considering that I had to have a sports physical just to be able to get my scuba diving certification, that's a recreational sport that I don't do on the regular. And I was required to have a sports physical put in place for the first time I got my um, open water certification. So, so are you so, a th um, thumbs up? Um, absolutely, I'm a thumbs up. Why in the world wouldn't you welcome knowing that you were physically prepared to take on a thousand mile race that's going to involve 
overuse of every part of your body, including your mind, sleep deprivation and nutritional wasteland out there. And then you're going to, I understand the sourdough mentality and that Alaskans are gritty and tough. And so are dog mushers full on. Absolutely agree with that. But at the same time, I want to know that I'm physically capable of competing in a race like that so that I can properly care for my dogs. So you are a thumbs up. I am definitely a thumbs up on this. Whether it's going to happen or not is remain to be seen. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think it should be a requirement. And just thinking about the Brent situation, yeah, he probably knew that he had an issue going into the race and he had to drop out of the race because of it. And technically, it's on the Iditarod to take care of him, at least get him back to Anchorage or to Nome or whatever because of his medical issue. Now, this is not an injury like a broken leg or an ankle or a shoulder or something like that, like we had last year where they had to get flown out and that whole thing. But if you're coming into the race and you're already injured, sick or whatever, it's on Iditarod to get you back. And I don't know if that's, uh, if that's quote unquote fair. That's, that's my think about it. So I'm going to open this up to our listeners. I think this is a great question to have on social media. And I would love to see some of the banter going back and forth. So what are your thoughts uh, out there in social media land? Are you a thumbs up, thumbs down, or thumbs sideways about requiring a basic sports type physical for the Iditarod mushers? Let us know in the comments and maybe let us know why you chose thumbs up, thumbs down, or thumbs sideways. So with that, let's move over to a lighter subject if we can. Let's talk a little bit about pizza. We talked about pizza last night. We're going to get to our answers in a little bit. But Tony, there is a story with Matt Failer and about and what he does with his pizza out on the trail. Yeah, so he was in Unicleet uh, earlier today. I think he's still there, actually. Um, and, of course, his wife, Liz Failer, is part of the insider team. She's a professional reporter. Um, she used to work for KTVA until it was bought out by KTUU, and that's the whole other story that really has nothing to do with this story other than to say that she's there focusing on the middle to the back of the pack, and she'll be in Unilaclete at least for a little while longer. So she decided to interview her um, husband, Matt Saylor, and they decided to talk about the pizza because she actually went on air and told everybody to buy pizza for these mushers. So they got a lot of pizza there in Unicleet. And he uh, made mention that he gets pizza sent to him every year by his fans. He's got a very dedicated fan group. Lots of people love Matt. And um, he said that, you know, he'll eat a few slices there in the checkpoint, but most of the pizza gets stuffed in the sled bag. He takes it on to Shaq Tulik, and he shares it with the kids there in Shaq. So I just felt like that was a feel-good story that we should all hear about. A hundred percent. I think that that is a cool way to go. Cause like we said last night, what happens to the guy that gets four or five pizzas that has that big <laughs> fan base. And, uh, you know, obviously you can't eat five large pizzas in one setting at a checkpoint, but, uh, Hey, if you're going to pass it along, why not to the kids a little bit further down the trail? So our next story is going to talk about our current red lantern holder, Jed Stevenson, uh, you were mentioning something about lead dog fatigue. What do you know about that? Yeah, and I think this is probably something that we can discuss a little bit, especially since I've got a musher and Little Miss Science over there who talked about um, sleep deprivation in dogs. This kind of falls right into that kind of category of, of the psychology of the sled dogs. But um, Jed Stephenson or Stevenson, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, he, um, one of his family members posted today um, to not worry, you know, fans, he's fallen behind because, um, not because the dogs are sick or injured or that he's sick or injured, but because he's having some leader trouble, which we hear often on the race, um, typically towards the middle to the last uh, little ways of the race. Your, your dogs get fatigued. They don't necessarily want to lead. 
And in his case, it's not that his leaders don't want to lead. They just don't want to lead without their favorite leader, which is a dog named Seabiscuit, who Jed was hoping to kind of save and preserve and really use out there on that third, third leg um, there from Unilaclete on to Gnome, because that is some of the hardest lead dogging of the entire race. They're running into the wind. They're running on ice. They're not necessarily a well-marked trail or one that they can really sniff a whole lot because it's being blown over so often. So he's been trying to keep lead dog Seabiscuit back in the team where Seabiscuit's not really having to set the pace. Seabiscuit's not really having to do a lot of mental work. Um, he can just run along with the rest of the team and just rock it out. But nobody wants to lead without Seabiscuit. He's their security blanket. So they're going a little bit slower as he's trying to coax the lead dogs along to uh, to make it without their security blanket. How old is Seabiscuit? They did not say. Because sometimes what happens in a situation like that. He the Seabiscuit is most likely the alpha member or the highest ranking member of Jed's kennel, probably the longest standing dog in the kennel that he used to train all of the others how to run. And so what that means is they always treat him like he is their leader. And a lot of mushers, not just rookie mushers like Jed, but a lot of mushers get into this little bit of a vortex, don't they, Robert? They do. And we could probably talk, at least I could probably talk for hours about this particular topic and strategy and training principles and the whole nine yards. Uh, and I'll just kind of outline my points on it. First off, we were talking earlier about the Disney movie Togo and how Togo pretty much was up there in front in lead and leading the entire way, the whole 260 miles, and it was all on his shoulders. And, you know, it, he was going to make it, and he was, the, he was the superhero of the team. In modern mushing, almost always, there is not one standout dog that leads all the way to Nome. And you'll often hear stories about saying that, you know, Max and and uh, and Marley led the entire way from Yetna Station to Nome. That is a rarity compared to modern mushing. Almost always nowadays, there has to be interchangeable leaders in the team. And hopefully, every musher trains that way, where they're training as many dogs as they possibly can to fit up into that position and take over if one goes down for whatever reason, whether it's mental fatigue or sleep deprivation, as Michelle mentioned last night, or an injury or whatever, there has to be other dogs that can step up. Now, in our kennel, uh, we have a pretty solid 12-dog team. And on that team, we have six of those 12 that could lead, but we have two or three very strong leaders as uh, Jed's dog, Seabiscuit. We have one that will pretty much lead anywhere, anytime. His name is Chief. He's out of Brenda Mackey's kennel. And we have his uh, goofy cohort, Poker, who will lead about 80% of the time. And then we have a couple that are somewhere in that 70 to 80% of the time. But, um, you know, they need a little bit of coaxing like Jed's dogs do uh, on the team. They need that Seabiscuit involved. And in shows previous, I always talk about my struggles in races. And I've talked about my experience on the Tustamina 200 a few times and going over those quote unquote hills known as the Caribou Hills, which are really <laughs> mountains on that side. And I was really struggling above the tree line. I was just having all sorts of problems with my dog team. And, you know, I switched everybody around trying to figure out who could lead where and no dog wanted to do it. They were doing something very similar to what Jed's going through. And I finally hooked up my dog, Sydney, put her in single lead and told her to go. And she went for a little while. And when we're talking about these mountains, she quickly learned, hey, I don't have to follow up these mountains if I don't want to. So what happened? 
I jumped off the sled. I walked up to the front of the team in front of Sydney, and I started walking and trudging through the snow in the middle of the night, trying to get my dog up over these hills. And it worked. We finally uh, got over those hills and then back down with Sydney in single lead. But that was a rarity. But that's a common scenario in Iditarod. I know that there are stories not too far back in history where teams have gotten all the way to safety, which is the last checkpoint before Nome, and their dogs just say, dude, dudette, whichever, we're not doing this anymore. We are not going to finish this race. We're going to lay down and we're going to bask in the sun. And I don't recall who it was. You probably know Tony. They jumped off the sled and they said, that's it, guys. We're going to start walking. And the musher just started walking towards Nome and he walked and he walked and he walked. And eventually his dogs caught up behind him and he jumped back on the sled and took off and finished the race. So this type of thing happens a heck of a lot in dog mushing. Do you know who that was, Tony? Yeah, that was Sarah Stokey. It wasn't. It was her um, last Iditarod that she completed. She uh, she ran out of leaders. Is basically what it was. It wasn't so much the dog laid down. It was just nobody wanted to be up in front. Um, and so she basically put herself as the lead dog, and and they walked quite a ways before um, they all kind of just walked in together under the arch and no, uh, there in Nome. It wasn't necessarily the dogs were just like nah. It was just more of a, a confidence thing. She was she was with the puppy team, and I think she was pretty much down to just the puppies. Uh, not a lot of experience for that last little bit. Yeah, and, and that's that's very typical. And I'm actually thinking of another story several years before that. I remember Alex talking about it. And if I re- recall, it was a guy, but I can't remember who it was. But uh, maybe we'll find that and... Uh, and uh, talk about it on the next episode. So if it's Sarah and this other guy, obviously this is this is a pretty common occurrence, and it looks like that um, that, that Jed's going to have uh, this issue as well, at least in, in the short term. Hopefully, uh, he is currently uh, in Eagle Island. Well, I have a question about Hold that. Hold on. Hopefully, he doesn't have to walk from Eagle Island to Nome. That's one heck of a walk, isn't it, Michelle? It is, but sometimes dogs like to give chase after another musher um it gives it gives them a little bit of vigor to uh compete if if he's really far back from eric you know 10 miles a half hour whatever and they're not really scenting those other dogs they may not even feel like going like what's the purpose there's nothing for us to do out here they may need to have that little bit of a push to ignite them yeah uh, yeah like i said we could definitely talk about this all night and uh throw out theories and and our experience and the whole nine yards so we wish jed the the best hopefully his dog seabiscuit uh does what he or or she we don't know if it's a male or a female dog uh does what they're supposed to do and uh continue on down the trail because you're right michelle uh eric kelly is a few hours ahead of him. So let's talk about two more stories before we well, talk. I'd like to bring up something that is very interesting that's going on right this minute with Iditarod. And that's that there are three Alaska natives in the top three. And it's making the Facebook pages go wild. Yeah, yeah. We're going to actually talk about uh, Ryan Reddington here in just a second, because that's a very cool story. And I think a lot of uh, um, fans that are new to the sport will will probably not know this little bit of trivia. But I want to talk first about the third third of the race. We talked about the first third of the race being that section over the mountain uh, ridge and then and, you know, down into Rhone and through the gorge and the steps and all that. Then we had the second third where most of these guys are finishing up on. That is uh, the Overland Trail to the Yukon, then across the Yukon, then up through the Caltag Portage. That's the second third. And now we're into the third third, and this is where things really start to happen. You're going to see those leaders really pull ahead. Well, not this year, but at least uh, that, that, that front pack will pull ahead and say, yep, it's going to be one of us, and you're going to 
notice that. But then you have the race in within races, and that's what we're seeing right now. We mentioned the race within the race between Eddie and Hunter, and the chase pack of Pete and Richie running down Ryan. And of course, Matt and Kelly are right there. And then Mila and Jesse and Matt, all of those guys are sort of right there in, in the uh, top 10. But let's have Tony go first. What are your thoughts on the third third? Is this your favorite portion of the race or do you like uh, one of the other two sections? I like the start of the race because I'm there for that. Um, no, this this is where the race is actually a race. Um, the first third is just everybody getting into that rhythm, into that pattern of little sleep. Um, you know, it's a very technical trail for the mushers. For me, I'm like, I just can't wait to see the compilation of all the crashes going down the gorge because that's what I remember as a kid being the coolest part of watching. I know it's not the coolest part of participating, but it's fun to watch. Um, I'm one of those that I watch NASCAR for the crashes. I'm, I'm just a violent person, apparently. Um, the Yukon is probably the most boring for me. Um, I, I, other than the 24 where everybody's asleep and so you can't see anything happening. The Yukon is just, I mean, it's, it's a roadway. It's, they're just, doing a road trip for that second leg. Um, but you really get into an actual race there in Unalakleet and, and on into Nome. So I, I think that this is probably my favorite, but I also really like that first leg just because that's where all the stories happen and you still have no idea how this is all going to play out. By the time they reach Unalakleet or Shack Tulik, you kind of have an idea um, not necessarily with the mid pack. Um, that's always a jumble and everybody's still jockeying, trying to get, um, one of those last top 20 spots. But, um, you know, as you were saying, you know, nobody's really pulled away, but we are seeing Reddington and Kaiser now really pull away. Richie Deal is far behind them. Um, I think he's, if he's got a shot, it's because they both screw up somehow and he catches up. Um, and even with Reddington and Kaiser, Kaiser is eating away at that hour that Ryan has on him, but he may run out of room before he, he catches him. It, not that Pete hasn't been here before. He does have a very strong team, both Bruce Lee and Dallas Stevie today being asked by multiple media sources, not just Insider, have said that Pete's got the monster team. It's just going to come down to strategy at this point, whether or not Ryan can hold him off that long. Ryan's got a great looking team too, um, but it's going to come down also to experience. And in the past, we've seen Ryan blow a lead because he starts getting into his head and overthinking things and making choices that aren't necessarily what he would do in a normal circumstance when the pressure is off. So Ryan's got to keep focused, and so far he is. Um, but Pete's right there, and the last time we ran the southern route like this, Pete won. So it's still not over. We won't really know until maybe White Mountain who the champion is going to be. But as we know, 2014, prime example uh, you can't call the race in White Mountain. There's still way too many miles before, you know. So this is the most exciting part of the race and my favorite. Michelle, what is your favorite third? Um, I like the restart in Willow just because it's <laughs> our hometown. But I actually enjoy the northern route more than I do the southern route. Um, I like when the mushers go through uh, Ruby and uh, Galena, just because I have connections in those villages and um, that have nothing to do with Iditarod. Um, and, and so I enjoy that. We've had a few dog training clients out of Ruby, believe it or not. Um, and, and so I, I have a connection there. So I like that route in particular. There are a heck of a lot of Alaskan stories about uh, living on the Yukon. And I think if you 
uh, Alaskan reality shows as well. I think there's one in Tanana. There's one there called the Yukon Kings or something like that. And yeah, there's a lot of cool stories there on the Yukon, even though that is, that is a very boring stretch and have been out there in the middle of nowhere. It is a, a wide open expanse as well. But that boring stretch makes you actually appreciate those little shining villages it even does more i can see the lights a little bit down uh in my opinion <laughs> i love the first third because there is all that uh technical mushing and that's what i think mushing is all about is going up and over hills and down mountains and through gorges and and uh, testing your metal if you will and i think that that is a lot of of, of real dog driving Whereas the Yukon stretch of it, uh, it's just monotonous. You're on there for a couple of days and it's pretty much just like putting a cruise control on, you know, the freeway and just hoping that you'll get to your destination without car trouble. (laughs) It's Uh, so interesting that you describe it that way. Like you're such a driver on your dog sled, but you are such an old man cruiser out on a Sunday drive any given day in your car. That's right. That's what right. in the world? That's right. But the true, <laughs> the true racing happens. I, I said driving happens the first third. Cruising happens the second third. I think the true racing happens. The true strategy, if you will, happens in that last third and like tony said uh, it, there's a lot of mental part of it and you talked about ryan reddington making decisions that he probably wouldn't necessarily make in other situations like that and and ryan he is a very accomplished dog musher he's won many uh mid-distance race over the years and he comes from a long line of dog mushers of course and that's the next quick story we want to mention i don't know if uh, newer fans know this, but of course, uh, Joe Reddington started the race way back in the early 70s. He never won the race. Uh, there has absolutely actually never been a Reddington that has won a race. And I saw on social media today, I don't recall who it was, whether it was one of the CVs or uh, Barb Reddington or whomever, but they said that the Reddingtons have come in fifth five times. Now, that's very impressive to have that many uh, top five finishes, but no Reddington has ever won the race in all of these years. And I don't know how many Reddingtons have have run the race. Do you know right off the top all the Reddingtons that have run, uh, Tony? Oh, gosh. I should have known that this was going to be a question because uh, Greg Heister and Bruce Lee also did not know the answer to this today. Um, But there was Joey, there was Joe, uh, there's Ray, Ryan, Robert. So there's five, there's at least five Reddingtons that have run. Um, I'm sure I've missed one. Um, but yeah, but uh, speaking of five, I don't know if this is like going to be a Mackie type moment, but if we're going to be saying five is like their lucky number, Ryan's bib number is number five. Yes, yeah, that's right. It could be. It could be the lucky number five. That happens to be my uh, favorite number in sports. I've been five my my whole sports career ever since I was a little kid. So Do we want to place a bet? So uh, you guys are superstitious. I'm not. I, I will place a bet any moment uh, if you guys were game. So I am rooting for Ryan. Uh, no. <laughs> I, I hope that uh, he does very well. There's still a lot of racing to, hap- to be happening out there. Remember, you have a mandatory eight in White Mountain uh, that is required from everybody. And then after that, uh, you can... Uh, unleash the gauntlet, the monster, whatever you call it, uh, and uh, work your way to Gnome. So let's jump into our musher of the day. And we've talked a little bit about uh, Eddie Burke already tonight. Michelle, what can you tell us about Eddie from his bio? Well, Tony covered the majority of what was in Eddie's bio, and I don't have any (laughs) behind-the-scenes things other than what I have seen him post on Facebook, which has been few and far between during the race, as we can all understand. Um, He 
does have a daughter named Amelia that he enjoys spending time with when he's not running dogs. I'm guessing that she's probably young and can't run with him yet. But um, I'll let Tony uh, kind of take it from there. Um, you know, Eddie is a force to be reckoned with, I believe. He's going to return after this year and and better himself and his dogs for it for sure and and i have to say hey the guy has one heck of a, a mullet i know he was a wrestler and a football <laughs> player and all that so you got to respect the mullet and i saw plenty of uh of uh hoisting of beers out on the first couple of days so I, it's my understanding he likes yep. uh he likes a little bit of pbr so he's the uh uh, the cheap beer kind of guy. You can't go wrong with that for sure. So what do you know about Eddie, Tony? Well, I'm not sure that that's his favorite beer. I think that's just whatever got handed <laughs> to him out on the trail, <laughs> which most trail gators, they like the cheap, especially when they're throwing it out to all of these mushers and, and other fans. Um, but yeah, I, I contacted his page and I'm not sure who's doing the updating uh, while he's out on the trail, if it's a significant other or if it's Aaron Burmeister, who just messaged me not too long ago saying he did a video update about the race on his Facebook page with Dallas TV. So I'm just giving a shout out because I miss both Aaron and Dallas on the trail. I miss listening to them talk dogs. So I'm very excited that they are doing these little things on their own. But for Eddie, let's get back to who we're talking about. Eddie, uh, the questions, of course, were uh, what uh, is one thing that they would like fans to know of who Eddie is and what makes him tick? And they said Eddie is a dedicated individual who has mental toughness. I think that's why mushing has worked so well for him. He doesn't let little things overwhelm him. He'll just keep chipping away. I think Eddie learned a lot of this through his time spent wrestling and boxing. Anything Eddie sets his mind to, he always wants to be the best at. But most importantly, he loves his daughter, Amelia. I believe that is his biggest motivation. And if you do follow Eddie on social media, he does a lot of, um, like, Instagram stories with her where they're dancing in the car and a lot of fun stuff. She's got a lot of attitude. I really enjoy seeing them interact together. Um, and then for the second question, I did change it up a little bit from what I've been asking the last few. Instead of asking what, what they bring in their sled bag, I was very specific and asked what snacks Eddie likes on the trail. And um, the answer was, I think if he could bring ice cream, he would. But out on the trail, I guess he would eat jerky, but probably has something sweet in his stash. So he keeps, I guess, his snacks close to the vest. I don't think he shares. Otherwise, they'd know what he takes on the, on the trail. So um, that's just a little bit about Eddie. Uh, I want to also share just a little story. When he was signing up at the Musher picnic, or the Musher sign-up slash Iditarod volunteer picnic this summer, um, there, were a, there were a lot of tourists and fans that were very obsessed with that mullet and said that he is the Jon Snow of mushing, which I guess is a Game of Thrones reference. I don't actually watch that show, so I'm not completely sure, but my best friend Amy, she was into it, and I believe that's where I've heard the name Jon Snow. So he's got a lot of fans who definitely are trying to vote him as cutest or hottest musher this year, and I, I don't know about that. I'm still a Pete Kaiser girl myself, but... Um, but yeah, so he, he gets a lot of fun out of, out of all of that. I think he's really enjoying this new life as a musher. Well, he does have the Jon Snow look for sure. And I wonder if his daughter <laughs> is named after, uh, what is it? Daenerys, who is played by Amelia. What's her last name? Clark. So it could be. I don't know if there's a true... Oh, I didn't even get an opportunity to give the answer since Robert is such a mega fan, as you now have all learned. <laughs> I am a big uh, I am a big Daenerys Targaryen fan. So, uh, yeah, I, I did really enjoy Game of Thrones. And he does um, have that. Uh, he, we enjoyed Game of Thrones well after it was fully done. Yeah, so years. We, we, we binge-watched all eight years of yep. it. 
So, yeah, I, I, I'm rooting for Eddie. I, I've been following his progress all year, uh, pretty much since the uh, the sign-up banquet as, or sign-up picnic, as uh, as Tony mentioned. So good luck to him. I know he's he's uh, getting a run for his money with Hunter Keefe there. And whoever gets that Rookie of the Year title, I think it will be a... Um, a, a one to to really go after now hold on a second didn't i say something about hunter being the rookie of the year and we said that he was i said he was the dark horse or something like that or was that somebody else i think that was you i don't <laughs> remember i slept since then <laughs> oh i think it was i think it could have been where you where you both guys said I don't think Hunter has it in his cards this year. He's he's just going to do kind of a laid back. I think I said no. Neither no. No 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 no. Neither of us said that. We all three of us chose either Eddie or Hunter to be rookie of the year. And Tony and I, if I recall, both were in the same camp of they will have a neck and neck situation. And you said. Hunter was the dark horse. All right. So we're going to have to go back. And, and I've been wrong many times. And I'm sure fans will will definitely scream at their their screens right now and say, yep, he's wrong all the time. So I could be wrong. It was our Friday show, our Friday before the ceremonial start, where we gave our predictions. And I'm going to go back and listen. None to... of us predicted Ryan Reddington being in the situation he's in right now. We, we did not. And, uh, and, and, and and we're seeing one heck of a race by all of these guys. I think everybody's doing you great. You know, one thing I got to mention before you guys go off on the deep end in the next section, I just got to say, um, Mila, Mila is your dark horse. She's always right there, isn't she, Tony? No, not necessarily. She, she she is. She's since she's come onto the the playing field, she's been right there in the top ten. Yep. Um, pretty consistently. Well, um, according to I her, honestly, arc- don't think this one. I, I, I don't know. I, I just don't see it this year for her. She's been having kind of a rough season. Yeah, she has. And well, uh, and according to her archives, though, you guys, she is a fourteenth place finish a 15th place finish and a fifth place finish. So, I mean, she's right there in it, but she's also averaging where she normally is for sure. But I mean, she's also the only woman in the top 10. And I think that that should be applauded. It should for sure. So before we get into our question of the day and talk a little bit about last night, Tony, uh, we have, We've been doing this a long time. I think we're on our 14th year right now. And almost every year we see that finish come in sometime early. Is it Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning where we fit, where we see that finish? And if it is, do you think it's going to be a little faster this year or about the same? What are your thoughts since you have Insider and you've heard all the interviews and all that? <laughs> Well, Danny CV has already predicted that it's going to be Tuesday afternoon around 3 p.m. And Danny is pretty good about being off by only about two hours one way or the other. Um, I don't typically start predicting until we get just a little bit closer to White Mountain. Um, there's just too many variables still, but I always... I always kind of just gauge by what Danny says, and then I guess two hours earlier. Um, I do know that unofficially Insider is saying that the um, right now who holds the fastest time on the Southern route is John Baker. Now, that doesn't mean that he has the fastest winning time ever because in 15 and 19, those two years, they ran out of Fairbanks, so we didn't have the the Southern route. So the fastest time is actually Mitch Seavey in 2017, um, but he did not run the Southern route. So there's, there's a lot of little, you know, this, that, and the other, but, um, but they're saying that if they stay on pace for what they're doing right now, whoever wins, which it looks like at this point, it'll be Ryan, but whoever wins Ryan, Pete or Richie, they all have the capability of coming in earlier than or faster, however you want to say it, 
than John Baker's time. They're going to break John Baker's record, and John won in 2011. So it's been a record for quite a while. But this is not a record for fastest ever, right? Right, yeah. That's Mitch Stevie in 2017. Uh, the the only difference is, the only reason why they're bringing it up is because that's the last time the Southern, um, the, the that's when the record was held for the Southern route because, like I said, 17 and 19. Um, 19 was the last time they ran the Southern route, but the record was not broken. 17, fastest time ever, they ran from Fairbanks to Nome. Gotcha. So, yeah, it's been a long time since they finished in the afternoon. Typically, we will do that show, and then uh, we're pretty much watching into the early morning, and I almost always wake up with somebody had had won overnight. So if we get an afternoon, early evening finish, that's going to be one that will be exciting because we can talk about it on the show. Hey, we have we have a new champion, and it's definitely going to be... Uh, um, well, I, I can't say that because uh, Pete Kaiser is no. a champion. So we're definitely going to have somebody in uh, a little bit faster than normal. So let's jump over to our question of the day. Last night's question uh, was talking about pizza. We got a lot of responses. I think overwhelmingly pepperoni was the top hit. I would probably guess that would be um, the overwhelming pizza topping in the United States. I'm sure... Other parts of the world, it's different. But what caught my eye, Tony and Michelle, is so many people like pineapple on their pizza. What do you yeah, guys think about that? Okay. There was way too many pineapple lovers on my on my feed in the last <laughs> 24 hours. It was disgusting. So I have this little guilty pleasure on one of these uh, little facebook reels that i catch every once in a while and there is this little boy and his fitness father and he allows the little boy to choose what he's going to eat all day and one of the days he had to eat blueberries on pizza ah so i think that pineapple on pizza is probably a little bit tastier than blueberries but um it all depends, Tony. You're automatically thinking of <laughs> Canadian bacon and pineapple to where my mind nope. goes immediately to fruit pizza and then it's appropriate. Yeah, because you're talking about those dessert pizzas and those tart type pizzas that's, are pretty That's good. how I save myself for saying that I like pe- pineapple on pizza. Pineapple does not <laughs> belong on a savory pizza. It does belong on a fruit pizza or a sweet pizza. So what else did you hear? I saw some interesting ones there. You know, some people said green chilies, but they're, you know, only in New Mexico, Colorado area. Some other folks said green olives and feta, sort of a Greek pizza. What else sort of Mm -hmm. caught your eye? Uh, There was one that said thin crust, white sauce with arugula, pears and cheese. West Coast style, not a fan of the tomato sauce, which, again, that was, fruit does not belong on a savory pizza. (laughs) Um, And then there was someone who said Scrapple. It's a Pennsylvania and Delaware thing. I don't know what that is, and I'm scared to Google it. (laughs) I know what Scrapple is. Isn't that sort of like spam? It's, uh, yeah, it's kind of like spam. Oh, see, I'm glad I didn't. It's fried it's a it's a very uh, I think it's a Dutch thing, I, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I only know about Scrapple because I watch Food Network. Okay, yeah. So there is <laughs> only that, I have never tried it, and I probably wouldn't. But that's why I know about it. Yeah. So there were some interesting <laughs> ones, but by far everybody's pretty much, at least uh, here in America, everyone's pretty much a purist. Everybody likes pepperoni and sausage and olives and mushrooms and the whole nine yards. So we didn't get any real... I'm uh, surprised we had no anchovies. I-, I didn't see any anchovies. Did you, Tony? Uh, not on uh our question i do know i can't remember which musher it is i think it's gearhart he likes anchovies on his pizza there you go so those were those were our um answers from last night so tonight we're going to go a little bit entertainment style and we're going to be very specific 
And the question is, or I did a question. Remember, hashtag, I did a question on social media. Tony will post it right after the show here. Please get your answers in and we'll talk about them tomorrow. What is your favorite mushing movie or documentary? And we say both because there's not a whole lot of mushing movies out there. There's Iron Will, Snow Dogs, Eight Below, Togo, all the Balto cartoons, but there's a bunch of documentaries that are very good. I'm thinking of The Great Alone. I'm thinking about Icebound, about the Serum Run. I'm thinking about, uh, uh, there's actually a brand new documentary coming out about Lance Mackey that goes up pretty much his mm-hmm. entire career. So that will be one to check out. So the question of the day is, what is your favorite mushing movie? And in the comments, let us know why. Why is Balto your favorite or Togo or Iron Will or whatever? So let's talk uh, quickly about ours. I'm going to go first. My favorite mushing movie happens to be what got me involved with the sport of mushing, where a lot of us of my mushing generation probably got their start, and that was seeing Iron Will. And I know that it is a Disney movie, but I was instantaneously hooked. I bought two dogs very shortly after that, two (laughs) Siberian Huskies. I ended up moving to Minnesota. And I chased the Iron Will dream for many years. And it is still a favorite of mine. As a matter of fact, in my college class that we taught just last month, we had to dig out an old copy of Iron Will on DVD. We don't even have it on Blu-ray. And had to buy a DVD player from the grocery store just so they could watch it. Tony, what is your favorite mushing movie? Do you not have Disney Plus because it's on Disney Plus for streaming? Well, we were at APU, and that looks pretty much like a uh, a 1980s high school. So, yeah, their internet there is pretty pretty okay. uh, pretty slow. Okay, okay. Um, I think our answers are all going to be the same. I'm going to go with documentary just because I don't want to say Iron Will, but I will say that I didn't see Iron Will until about. Two years ago, I watched it during the COVID pandemic. Oh my goodness! That was the first time I'd seen it. Yeah, um, I'd heard about it. Dallas TV. I think that's the only mushing movie he said was worth anything. Once <laughs> I watched it, I was like, I totally see where he got like half of the ideas for Wild Ride. Like it was just, it, it was an homage, a homage to um, uh, to Iron Will. But I, I cried. I was actually on an airplane the first time I watched it all the way through, and I cried. So I don't like doing that in public. But I'm going to go with the documentary, and it's definitely The Great Alone. I, uh, you know, full disclosure, Lance Mackey was not one of my favorite mushers when he was winning everything. I know. I'm weird. Judge me all you want. It just, And it wasn't anything to do with I was Team Stevie or anything like that. I just... For some reason, other than the, oh, the 13 was really cool. It was like, okay. And the, the consecutive four, that was cool too and, and stuff. But I just was never really into the hype. Um, I became a fan much later and partially due to the documentary because it did explain a little bit more in depth about who Lance was and where some of kind of the outrageous comments about, you know, not feeling like people loved him or appreciated him came from. And that was something that always kind of annoyed me. I'm like, do you not see like the throngs of people coming to this race with your merchandise, wearing it all over them? They're there for you. They're not there for any other musher. And so seeing that documentary that, you know, came out several years after he stopped winning things, um, it really opened my eyes to a lot of what I found annoying about him before, and it, it gave me a different perspective. Michelle? Well, <laughs> I, I have to give a little bit of a backstory before I say the one that I've already mentioned several times. Um, in 1999, I met Robert And my son, Tyler, was born in 1994. So he was five years old when we met Robert. And his brother, Kyle, was eight. And their sister was only two. Nicole was born in 97. And we watched Disney movies pretty much round the clock 
back then, and that was on DVD because Blu-ray wasn't out yet and VHS was about to die, and you did not have streaming back then. But they loved that story, and it would capture their attention which I always found fascinating because the three of them had different levels of comprehension and understanding, obviously, and cartoons were more Nicole and Tyler's speed where Kyle was just getting into being able to follow an entire movie, let alone a nearly two hour movie. But that movie, Iron Will, just would have all three of them caught up in it asking questions when can our dogs learn how to do this and all of those things and I had to explain to them that we had Malamutes they weren't racing dogs they were freighting dogs and um, as I've shared Robert and I met because I asked a question all right how do I get my dogs to do this my kids are dying to learn how I don't even have a sled and he said to me I do that and I'm Iron Will, basically. It was so grandiose, but um, I actually loved that about him because it came across as so confident. And I just kept thinking in the back of my mind, okay, let's get this guy here. Let's let him show my kids what it's all about. They'll think he's a movie star and we'll move on. Well, it's been 22 years, hasn't it? As of today, Michelle, it's been 22 years. So it has been quite the adventure that started off uh, with a little bit of an iron will connection. So, guys. But what else is interesting, Robert, is your students this year are younger than our daughter. In other words, born after 97. They were 20 and 19-year-olds, and none of those 10 students had ever seen iron will. That's blasphemy in in the, in the mushing world. So uh, if if it's one of Dallas CV's favorites, uh, I guess we're in good company for sure. So, guys, that is our episode. Uh, Michelle, I'll have you guys go first tonight. Did we miss anything or anything you want to say before we go? No, we ended on a very nostalgic note, and I liked that. All right, and Tony, did we miss anything, or do you have anything else? Nope. I think if we've missed anything, we'll catch it tomorrow because uh, I think this was a good episode and we got to talk a little bit about mushing movies and, and making fun of the fact that I didn't see Iron Will until I was an adult. Hey, that's okay. At least you've seen it and you saw it on an airplane. <laughs> so uh, there's nothing wrong with that. So uh, good on you for sure. Uh, this is where we pay the bills a little bit here on Mushing Radio. Hopefully you haven't hit end yet. But if you haven't, make sure you subscribe to our episode. Tell your family and friends. Maybe they can become a rabid listener just like you. Uh, definitely be with us tomorrow. We're heading into the home stretch. And remember, our show goes on well after the finish. The first finishers are in Nome. We continue all the way through the banquet. So we will be on for at least seven more nights because it ends on Sunday night with the banquet. So you'll definitely hear us for another week. So we have at least six or seven more hours of banter about this year's Iditarod. If you're feeling generous, head on over to patreon.com slash firstpalmedia. We've talked about and teased about Tony's famous Iditarod cookies. You can get those for a partly $25 sponsorship. And you get all sorts of other stuff, including access to our world-famous behind-the-scenes after show that we call The Gang Line. On our next episode, we're going to talk deep about that I did a ride, or excuse me, wild ride uh, dinner show that